So we're learning Parshas Vayetze, this week's Parsha, Torah portion of the week is Parshas Vayetze, where we read about the journeys and adventures of Yaakov, of Jacob, and um, it's a very powerful uh, Parsha. I was actually born on Parshas Vayetze, 45 years ago this Shabbos, and my birthday again is this Shabbos, my birthday's tomorrow night. So really? Tess Kislev, the ninth of Kislev, thank you so much, is uh, my birthday, and I was born on this Shabbos, Parshas Vayetze. So the discourse we're learning from the Rebbe is from 1991, from 1992, is uh, 5752, and it's also Shabbos, Parshas Vayetze, Tess Kislev, the ninth of Kislev also. So it's a confluence of events we have here. Hey Mitch, how are you? <laughs> you guys have been coming out there every week. You come this week, he comes that week, he comes this week. <laughs> yeah, home. He was here when you were, and you were here when he wasn't. So it's interesting. So and I was born in 1977, and this parsha. What? I'm a baby. I know the gray hairs in my beard say differently, but yes, I'm a baby with gray hairs in his beard. Yes. <laughs> so. Parshas Vayetze in 1997, in 1991, and this year all happen on the 9th of Kislev. All is the same Parsha. And so we're learning a discourse that by divine providence, by beautiful, holy synchronicity, comes together all this week. So there's got to be a special correlation between these events. So we have the name, the Parsha, the Torah portion, the date on the Jewish calendar. And that date also holds other significance than just my birthday. It's the birthday of the second Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Dovber of Lubavitch. Dovber of Lubavitch was perhaps the biggest teacher of Jewish mysticism, probably of all time, maybe even until our Rebbe. It says that he used to take a paragraph of his father and his teachings and write 100 pages on it. It was almost, he was compared to like a river that broadens its, its banks like a river as it flows, expands and expands and expands until it hits the ocean, and then it fully opens up. So that's the way he was. He started like a wellspring from the, the depths, and then expanded all the teachings of Jewish mysticism far and wide, and with great depth too. A river also cuts into the earth and, and goes deeper. So just like a river expands and goes deeper, that is what he did with his teachings. It says if you, his uh, son-in-law, said if you cut his finger, he would bleed Hasidic teachings. That's like his, like, it was so part of him that even his blood, his physicality was representative of the deepest spiritual concepts. That's how amazing it was. And so he was born on this day, on the 9th of Kislev, the same day I was born, the same day this discourse is from, and the Shabbos. But guess what? He also passed away on the same exact day, 54 years later. Day to day, the exact day, 54 years later, he was very uh, fragile his whole life and his health. And at 54 years old, he passed away. But it says an amazing thing. It says that God counts the days of the righteous day in, day out. Each day is a special day. Each moment is a special moment. Obviously, each moment of our lives is special. But sometimes we kind of like miss it, you know? We're thinking about what's for dinner rather than being conscious and present in the moment. But it says a righteous person, God counts the moments of their life and they count the moments of their life as well. And it shows 
that his spiritual life so impacted his physical life that he was born and died at the same exact time, the same exact day. That his day was, years were complete, his months were complete, his weeks were complete, his days were complete to the day, 54 years later. There's one other example we have of that, and that is Moses. Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses was born on the 7th of Adar and passed away 120 years to the day later on the 7th of Adar. <clears throat> He's also the example we give of that. But we can ask a very good question. If he was a spiritual mystic, how come there's been thousands of prophets, prophetesses, righteous men, women, and we don't see this by them? We only have two examples out of the hundreds, if not thousands, of great rabbis, rebbitsons, Jewish amazing mystics over the years. How come we only have two examples? Right? I mean, it's like an obvious question. Like, shouldn't every holy, righteous person therefore be born on the same day of their passing and pass on the same day of their birth? Like, that would make logical sense if you're saying that every day is so complete, so mindful, so conscious, so spiritual. <clears throat> that would make a lot of sense. And one of the reasons it's given that we do not see it is, is that not always is it felt physically. Meaning, say, their perfection can remain spiritual, but not come down physically, not be manifest before the eyes of average folks like myself to perceive the great spiritual achievements that they had. So most righteous people, most, most holy mystics, do not have this event culminate to such a way. But we have these two amazing examples, one of Moses about 3,000 years ago, and the Mitzvah Rebbe about 150 years ago. 150, 850, yeah, about 170 years ago. So it's an amazing confluence of events, and it's very, very special. And this unusual nature of him is expressed in that another way as well. It's well known that the Chabad Rebbe's a lot of times were arrested for counter-revolutionary activities. They were all revolutionaries. They weren't go-with-the-flow type of guys. Some of them fought against the Tsar. Some of them fought against the communists. Some fought against Stalin. Some fought against Hitler. Some fought against Saddam Hussein. But each one had their counterpart. One fought against Napoleon. We learned, we'll learn about that in a couple of weeks. The Mitle Rebbe, in his time, was arrested on trumped-up charges by a jealous family member from his wife's side. It's always the in-laws, right? <laughs> and they wrote up trumped-up charges against him, saying a few accusations. One of the accusations was, is that he's Mashiach. He's Mashiach. He had built this gigantic shul like 770 Eastern Parkway, in the small town of Lubavitch. Can you imagine building 770 Eastern Parkway, which you know holds like thousands of people, and planting that down in like Sedona, Arizona, <laughs> and having like thousands of Jews flock there all the time on a pilgrimage. That's basically what he did. Lubavitch was like a hippie town. It was like a town of like mystics and artists and like spiritual seekers and like and, and lumberjacks too, because there's a lot of forests there. But it was the, the seat of Chabad for 200 years was in this tiny, tucked away, mystical place called Lubavitch. 
We know it now because it's a few generations later. But what he did was build this beautiful big shul. It was not lavish, but it was gigantic. And people flocked there from all over Russia, Poland, Hungary, everywhere, came to that place. The Russian government sent architects in to measure it. Because one of the accusations was it had the same dimensions as the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. That's how like, the accusations of him being the Messiah were so strong that they said maybe he's rebuilding the Holy Temple in Russia under our noses. Like, that's literally what they thought. And he was arrested. And his arrest culminated in a joyous liberation that he was released from prison eventually. Because all the charges were false. He proved them all wrong. And he passed away a year, a day short of a year later. Not because of the imprisonment, but just what happened. And so when he passed away, it was a day before the year anniversary of his liberation of getting out of jail. And so the day was supposed to be a day of great celebration. Said it was a sad day. But for us, passed down through the generations, it's become a very, very happy day. A very, very positive day. Because we realize that the greatness of his teachings really came to its culmination once he was liberated and exonerated from these charges and that he taught far and wide the widest breadth of Jewish mysticism definitely until that point, maybe until Arevi now. An amazing depth. But we know that every day on the Jewish calendar, we have a calendar that's both solar and lunar. We have the solar calendar that begins and ends on Rosh Hashanah. And we have the lunar calendar that begins and ends on Passover. Okay, so it's six months difference. So every day of the year is connected very deeply to the Torah portion of the week. So we have to find the connection between this week's Torah portion, Vayetze, and the events of the Mitlarebbe's birthday, passing, and eventually, and liberation as well. And the Rebbe ties it very deeply into the coming of Mashiach now. The coming of the true and complete redemption through Mashiach. That now everything has been completed, the Rebbe says, for Mashiach to come. And it only remains is to receive Mashiach in actuality. But the innovation that he created by his life, the Mithra Rebbe, the second Chabad Rebbe is, is that he completed the days of his life to precision. That we see that the spirituality and the physicality were in one continuum. And it mirrors his soul. That you and I, how do we live? We have physical lives and we have spiritual moments. Would you say that's correct? Most of our lives is pretty physical. Eating, sleeping, drinking, work, taxes, bills, Black Friday sales. We have very physical lives, which is beautiful and it's fine. But we have spiritual moments interspersed within our physical lives. We have moments, hopefully, of clarity, of mindfulness. Maybe in the morning when we say Shema Yisrael, maybe we put tefillin on, maybe we do a mitzvah, maybe we see our kids and we get nachas from them, we have pleasure from them, they do something good. We have moments of moral clarity. We have spiritual moments. Maybe it's a Rosh Hashanah, a Hanukkah, whatever it is for us. Each one of us has our own different spiritual moments that are these kind of 
breaks from the physical. And if you look at it, physicality and spirituality are really two opposites. But those moments of spirituality don't always filter into the rest of our lives. That's why Shabbos is so beautiful. Shabbos comes every week whether we want to have it or not. And right up until the moment Shabbos comes in, I can't say I'm not sometimes a little bit resentful. Like, i got to stop now. i got to take a break now. But once Shabbos comes in, it's like, ah. Oh, see my wife lighting Shabbat candles? <laughs> this is the best. Like, what could be better? That's my, my spiritual moment. When I come downstairs and all the kids are calm and being crazy at the same time, and Shabbos is in, it's a spiritual moment. I try to carry with me all week. And each of us have that. And the more we have those moments and bring those moments into our lives, those spiritual connection moments, the more enriched and meaningful our lives are. And we try and find them. We try and grasp at them. We try and get as many as we can. Sometimes they're not easily attainable, but we try and get those spiritual moments. We try and feel that energy and transpose that energy into the rest of our lives. A sadik, a righteous person, a truly pure and righteous person, is the complete opposite. He or she lives a spiritual life, constantly tapped into spirituality, constantly connecting to God, constantly involved in mitzvahs and reaching a higher and higher level spiritually. And that's what sustains them. And then they have personal interactions and they have life. And those are their physical moments that they have interspersed throughout their lives. And they try and infuse the spiritual into the physical Similarly to the way we do, but just from an opposite end of the spectrum, an opposite perspective. And so their job, their life, their you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and exercising at the gym, and paying bills, and all that stuff, is Torah and mitzvahs. It's studying Torah, doing mitzvahs, meditating, praying, doing spiritual stuff. And it's also hard for them. It's not just easy. It doesn't come easy. They also have to work. You also have to pay spiritual bills. They have to push the envelope higher and higher. So each one of them is more about purifying the physical self than it is to find spiritual moments. They're constantly trying to reconcile the spiritual with the physical in an active way. Where we are trying to reconcile our spiritual moments with our physical self and make harmony of that and inspire our physical moments as well. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So meaning to say their life is the life of the soul, our life is the life of the body. They're both equally right. I mean, God creates us both for a reason. It doesn't mean we're lower than or less than or anything like that. It means we are each a composite of a greater picture. But we have to understand that there is not just what our eyes tell us about a person is what they are, clearly. So when we look at a righteous person, a sadik, it's not the life of the body, it's the life of the soul. And therefore, his physical life is an extension of his spiritual life and unified in a singular being. And so God counts the moments and days and every moment of their life because they're constantly interspersed with God. The same way you and I know today is Thursday, December 1st, 2022. They know God. I'll tell you an example. When the Mitle Rebbe, his father, was in jail, there was no light. And the question was, how does he know when to pray? He knew the prayers by heart. 
So he'd say the prayers. But how did he know when to pray? After 53 days in jail, you know, day becomes night, night becomes day, there's no light, there's no sunrise, there's no knowing when what's what. The same meal comes through the door. He does, it's, you know, you lose track. So it says that he saw the godly name of Hashem come down differently in the 24 hours of the day. There's different names of God and way the permutations of the names and the numbers. And he would see the different energy that came in each hour. Means that you and I look at our clock, at our phone, and see the time. They sense the godly energy that's in the room. And they can tell you it's 5 o'clock on whatever time, whatever day. It's a totally different compass. Totally different alignment than we have. Which is beautiful. Guess what? You know it too. But it's unconscious. It's, it's buried in there. It's covered up by all the other stuff that's going on. We all know it. It's all there. Our bodies perceive it. Our souls for sure perceive it. But it's covered up. It's concealed from us. It's like it's in the sub, 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 subconscious of our, of our spiritual energies that, that are in us. But we can be conscious of it. And sometimes we feel it, but we can't put a finger on it. But the righteous, the Siddiquim, these mystics, they get it. They like literally can tell time by the godly energy in the room. So the world, by definition, in quantum mechanics, in quantum physics, and in Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, is defined by two vertices, time and space. The intersection of time and space is what creates our, our physical reality. This is what defines the physical parameters of our existence in the physical world. Time and space. Everyone agrees. Scientists, mystics, rabbis, everyone agrees. So, the fact that this happens means that we have to bring God into the time and space of our reality. We have to bring God into that time and space, not only a way in which a righteous man or woman can perceive that, but in a way that's actually felt, that is actually part of our time and space to be sanctified. What's the proof? How do we sanctify space? Anyone have any good ideas? Or sanctify time is an easier one. How do we sanctify time? We time more spiritual. Well, we have Shabbos. Comes every seven days, Shabbos. We have certain set times for prayers, morning prayers, early evening prayers, evening prayers. When we say Kiddush on Yom Tov, what do we say? Shehechiyano v'kiyamano v'higiyano lizman ha zeh. What does it mean? Thank you, God. Bless you, King of the Universe, for letting me reach this moment, this occasion. For reaching, for, for ascending, to getting to this moment. We sanctify time. We sanctify time in very special ways. As Jews who are observant Jews, who are conscious of, of the time. What time should I say Shema in the morning? What time should I say Shema at night? What time should I pray? What time should I daven in, in, the, in the evening, in the, in the nighttime? There's, there's, a, there's a constant consciousness going on of the day is not just hour in, hour out. There's a famous saying by Rabbi Shalom Dovbeir. He lived in the uh, late 18, early 1900s. And he says, life is a summer's day and a winter's night. If you don't feel it now, I don't know when you're going to feel it. <laughs> like the earliest it is right now. It's like dark at 4.15 right now, especially if it's cloudy out. It's like dark at 4. Like literally, it's crazy. So if you don't think that a winter's night is a lifetime, <laughs> I don't know what you're doing right now. Your nights are more exciting than mine. But 
It's, it's really true. Like you could just like let life pass you by. Summer's day and a winter's night. Just go, just go. Just constant transition. Animals feel that way, but we're not animals. Animals get that too. They get it. They hibernate in the winter and they shut down at nighttime or the ones that are, uh, you know, nocturnal come out in the nighttime. My son saw a raccoon at like six o'clock, you know, it's like their owls are ready, but we're not animals. Our job is not to just live in the natural order of things, but to sanctify the natural order of things, to bring into the time and the seasonal changes, be cognizant of them. We don't divorce ourselves from them, but be cognizant of them to bring the spiritual change that we need to see into our lives. And by each day in, day out, adding a little bit more of the, of the consciousness and sanctity of time, we're able to do so. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, if, we, if you say the Shema in the morning, when you wake up and you say the Shema at night before you go to bed, your day is complete. There's a great YouTube video of like a guy giving a, a graduation speech for Marines. He says, every day a Marine accomplishes at least one thing, even if his day is horrible. What does he say? He makes his bed, he checks his uniform, he makes his foot uh, locker at the bed, and he makes his bed every morning before he goes to line up or whatever it's called, drill. And even if he has the hard, most horrible day ever, and he falls and he loses and whatever happens, he comes back to a fully made bed, being cognizant, he accomplished one thing in the morning. He did at least one good thing today. He made his bed. He said, everyone should make their bed. As a Jew, we have a lot of beds to be made, and it's much easier to feel fulfilled. Because if you say Shema in the morning, Shema Yisrael, Hashem, Elkein, Hashem, Echad in the morning, your day is already okay. Your day is already good. You proclaim the oneness of God. You brought divinity into your morning, into your day, by saying the Shema. You're already winning. Even if the rest of your day is horrible. You're already okay. I'll give you an example. I had this crazy day on Wednesday. Personal. <laughs> I joke. On, uh, I'm sorry, not Wednesday. On Tuesday. Tuesday. I go to uh, speak in a, a resi the residences of Plainview. It's like an assisted living for um, you know, uh, older folks. And uh, we have our schmooze with the rabbi type of thing there. And we have a nice crowd of people. It's great. Love it. Great energy in the room. Me and like everyone's over, everyone's 65 to 105. And it's awesome. And we have great energy. And I speak, to, I went there at two o'clock. I was supposed to be there at two o'clock. For whatever reason, my phone all day long was an hour behind. I have no idea why. I have no idea like what happened. But every meeting, I, like I showed up too late. And like the only person who said anything to me was... The, they call me up. They're like, uh, Rabbi, uh, what time are you coming? I'm like, I'm supposed to be there at 2 o'clock. They're like, Rabbi, it's like 2.07 right now. I don't forget the call. I'm like, it's 2.07? I look at my phone. It's like 1.07. I said to the guy, I'm in a meeting with another guy. I said, what time is it? He goes, looks, look, he says, look at the clock. It's 2.07. I'm like, my phone has been an hour off all day long. Like, like literally, I, don't, I still don't know why. How could that be? I have no idea. Like, I have no idea. And no, no one said anything to me. I remember that guy, he's like, like I'm an hour late to his meeting. And he's insane. He's like, there for me. I was like, okay, fine. I'm like, yeah. Like, no one said anything to me. But I was like, you know, if I said, I was with the guy. I was like, Lee, what's, what's, what? I was like, what time is it? He's like, I was like, I'm sorry, I'm so late. He's like, no, Rabbi, it's okay. I'm like, it's okay. Like, I don't, I'm a pretty punctual guy. Like, crazy. And I was like, the whole day went that way. And I studied with someone in Israel at night on Zoom. Someone who used to live here in Plainview and now went, lives in Israel. And our, my Zoom connection was off. Like we couldn't, we were supposed to start at, um, 
was supposed to start my time 9.30. He couldn't get on to like 10.07. Everything in my day on Tuesday was like off. Like everything. And like I realized the picks, I picked up the pieces only like before I went to bed. Like it was a crazy day. I have no idea why. But I look back and I said to my wife, I was like, you know, what, what kind of day? She's like, you said Shema, you Davin? I said, yeah. Hmm. You had a good day. I was like, you meant to all the meetings you're supposed to go to? I said, yeah. The rope pushed off an hour. This one was about 45, 40 minutes. I did everything. I did everything. I stayed with the people in the residences. I said, you guys are amazing for sticking around. I was a half hour late only. Thank God the guy called me because I would have been an hour late. And it was amazing. And it all worked. But what did I have to rest my hat on? I made my bed in the morning. I said, Shema Yisrael. I don't make my bed, but don't tell anybody. But I said, Shema. That's it. I sanctified time. I davened. I put tefillin on. And, yep, I sanctified time. Yeah, I put it on an hour late. But okay. Put on. What can I do? My phone all day. I don't know where it was. It was off an hour. How did it get fixed? I don't know. You know what happened to me? I got in the car. I forgot what time it was. And I plugged in my phone to the Android Auto on the yeah. car. And like it went back for a moment, and then I unplugged it. It went back an hour again. I maybe something there. I have no idea. Maybe my GPS. Oh, maybe your uh, car phone. No, my car said the right time. Oh, it is. Drink this, please. His cups. Go ahead. This is so strange. So weird. But the point is to sanctify our time. So the fact that it's like even if you're off an hour all day and your whole day's out of alignment, you have alignment. Even if your whole day is upside down or backwards and thank god there was no real problems in my day per se but you sanctified time already and you made a time for yourself you sanctified it there's a hebrew word for year year our year called shana what is shana we know rosh hashanah means the head of the year the new year is rosh hashanah but the word for year is an interesting word why is it interesting because Shana has the same root as Shinui. You hear Shinui, Shana? What does Shinui mean? Change. Change. It's very interesting. Wait, I could, like I know when the sun is going to go 365, 365, 365. Why is it changing? It's not changing. It's very, I mean, very fragmentally, frag, frag, very slightly. Does it actually change the actual number? But like, you know. Like, when the New Year comes in, it's the New Year's comes in. It's not like, oh my goodness, this year's only 20 days long. Like, I never have that. So why is the name for year, which is something that is very consistent, called change, called movement? So it shows us that the year should encompass all the changes that happen throughout time. Meaning to say, if you're 5783, this year we're in, is the same as your 5782, we have big problems. If your 2022 is the same as your 2021 and your 2023 is the same as 2022, you're not living. Human beings are movers and shakers. We have to move and shake. We have to change. We have to change. We have to keep going. We constantly have to change. And more interestingly, sometimes our changes are for the bad. and Sometimes our changes are for good. Change is not good in and of itself. There was a famous what, uh, election, hope and change, right? What does hope and change mean? Nothing. <laughs> it means nothing. <laughs> I'm running on the process of hope and change. What does that mean? Okay. Well, like, I don't know. Like, I hoped things are going to change for the good and not bad. And like, I hope, but that didn't change anything in my life. Hope doesn't lead to anything good. And change could be really bad. Like, it could be worse. And I think it did. But the point is, 
is that change could be good or bad. So our year could be filled with transformations that are positive. Our year could be filled with, God forbid, the opposite of positive. Here we have a righteous person. We're talking again about Moses and the Middle Rebbe, the second Chabad Rebbe, that they themselves are so perfect that their years were perfect. That each year, year in, year out, so much so that it was expressed by Moses, 120 years to the day, perfectly. And 54 years, perfect 54 years to the day, perfectly, shows us that God fulfills and sits and counts the days of the righteous in their spiritual life, also manifesting it in the physical life when their passing falls on the day of their birth. There's an interesting teaching also that our patriarchs also possess that perfection on, on a similar level as well. But what is the job of us? What's our job as quote-unquote average Jews? As like, we're Jews. We're not perfect that way. We don't live with such clearly defined perfection in our lives. We have good days. We have bad days. We have moments of, of, of fragility. We have moments of strength. We go through changes. We go through. It's real. Life is real. It's not uh, just an upward trajectory going up. I hope for all of you it is, but for most of us it's not. So the job of a Jewish person to be a spiritual person has to be activity and, ch and change, movement to achieve in the world. This week's Parsha is Parsha's Vayetze, where we hear about Yaakov being the third forefather, right? We have Abraham, the first Jew, married to Sarah. Then we have them giving birth to Yitzchak, Isaac, the first person born as a Jew. And then he has Esau and Yaakov and Jacob. The third patriarch is Jacob, Yaakov, whose name eventually next week gets changed to Israel, Yisrael, where all the children of Jacob, where all the children of Yaakov, of Yisrael, B'nai Yisrael, the Jewish people are called B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel, or Kehilat Yaakov, the congregation of Jacob. That's who we are. Why? Jacob, unlike the other forefathers, had a perfect Jewish family. Believe it or not, the first two generations of the Jewish people did not have perfectly good Jewish families. Abraham had a son who was not such a good guy, Yishmael. Isaac had a son who was not such a good guy, Esau. Jacob was the progenitor of the 12 tribes of Israel. All of his children, good Jewish boys, and one daughter, Dina, good Jewish girl. Perfect Jewish family. And that's why he gave birth to the 12 tribes of Israel, by which we all stem from. All Jews stemmed most directly and most perfectly to Jacob, more than Abraham, more than Isaac. It says, Mitasei Shlema, his bed was perfect. His home was perfect. I mean, Obviously, there was mistakes made and things like this. But meaning to say, all his children were Jews. All his, it was the first generation of pure Jews coming out of a Jew. First generation of somebody. It says, Titan Emes Liyakev. We give truth. Jacob is the spirit of truth. He's the Midah of Tiferet. Beauty, harmony, balance. Abraham is the balance of, is, is the attribute of kindness, which is full right side energy. His son Isaac was full left side energy, discipline, severity. Yaakov is in the middle, which is Tiferis, which is harmony, balance, beauty, symmetry, rectification. And that's why he was able to give birth to who we are today. 
as Jews. As Judaism, we, in Judaism, we know our mother is the determiner of our Judaism. And our tribe is determined by our father because of Yaakov. Our tribe comes from the father. Our Judaism comes from the mother. The mother is the more important, all-encompassing force. And the father is the more specific tribal energy of each one of us. And in this week's partial, we hear about why. Jacob's father, Isaac, lived his whole life in Israel. He was a holy person. He stayed in one place, lived his whole life in Israel, specifically there. Yaakov, Yisrael, Jacob, on the other hand, was a spiritual warrior, and a physical warrior too, if, it, if at times necessitated. He conquered new ground spiritually. If you said to me, what's my take on Yaakov's life? I would say he's an innovator. He had innovation. You've heard of influencers today? Yeah, influencers. Influencers are weak. Influencers says, Balenciaga, whatever, however you pronounce it, says, sell my product. And this person goes on Instagram and puts on the, the Gucci and the this and that and says, I'm going to influence you to buy Gucci. And just like, I'll tell you a video about uh, how I bought coffee today and I'll wear this to show you that and like influence you and push you into that product or whatever it is, right? That's an influencer. Okay, there's a power there, for sure. But someone who innovates something holds the true power. Someone who's an innovator takes something and makes something totally new. Totally not seen before. Someone has true talent, true access to skills, or true power stems from innovation. All of us have the potential for innovation. All of us are... Really, we're all, I'll be honest, born innovators. The fact that you are who you are makes you automatically an innovator. Because it says, Ein shava. there's no two minds that think alike. No one looks exactly the same, no one thinks exactly the same, no one feels exactly the same. And the fact that you are born and created by God means, number one, you're necessary. Number two, you're valuable. Number three, you have responsibilities. But I'd say number four is you're an innovation. You're an innovation. You're new. You're amazing. Just the fact that you're born. You say, well, everyone's born. Well, yeah, everyone's born, but you're unique. Do you know it? You're, are you conscious of it? Are you aware of it? Are you aware of your power? Are you aware of your capacity for innovation? If you're not, I'm here to tell you, you can be. We're all innovators. And as Jews, where do we get this capacity for innovation from? From Yaakov. He was an innovator. His father was an innovator too. His grandfather was a huge innovator for sure. But his innovation led to action and led to permanence that his father and grandfather did not do. His permanent innovation left a mark more on Judaism than perhaps anybody ever. That's who Yaakov was. That's why his name is Israel, Yisrael. That's what we call our, our holy land, Israel. That's what we call the children of Israel. We're called Israelites, we're called Jews, based on the fact of Yaakov. What was his innovation? He was born in Israel to a holy father and a holy mother. He left the place of his birth to go to Haran. You know what Haran is? Haran is like the South Bronx times a million. It's the most dangerous place on earth. It's like Beirut. It's like, like Kiev right now. It's like the most violent, immoral, destructive, horrible place on earth. 
It's it's called the, the, the viciousness. It was called the vicious place. That's literally what it's called. Viciousness. Vicious. Eat you alive. Horrible place. And he goes there. And he begins to start a Jewish family. In that place. He didn't, he didn't start a Jewish family in Israel, in Jerusalem, in in the, in, the, in the shadow of his of his father and his grandfather, he started a Jewish family in the worst place on earth, literally. And he said, "This is the place. God leads me here. I'm going." And he says to God, "All I need is food to eat, clothes to wear, and I promise you, I'll go. Just return me to the house of my father in peace, and I'll go. I'll go to this vicious place." And when he says clothes to wear, he's saying, I'm going to keep the mitzvahs. Mitzvahs are a garment. When he says food to eat, what's on the tip of his mouth? Torah. Words of Torah. He says, I go to this place. And God, I'm not changing. I'm not losing my Jewish identity in this place. I'm still a mitzvah Jew. I'm still a Torah Jew. I'm still a child of the house of my father where I want to go back. I'm still that guy. I'm not doing like the Romans do. Right? In Rome, do as the Romans. I'm not assimilating. And even more, I'm not intermarrying. He says, he got two wives from this place. Who are they? His wife, his mother's brother's daughters. And he said, this is the place. And he takes these two amazing women, Rachel, Rachel and Leah. He says, Rachel, I don't know why no one translates Leah. I always wonder. Rachel and Leah, Rachel and Leah. And he builds a Jewish family in that place. It's an amazing, amazing tale. I mean, if you want to like be, if you want to make an action movie, I say make an action movie out of this week's Parsha and next week's Parsha. The rest of the whole book of Genesis is full action-packed. If you want to be entertained, there's an amazing Netflix series. It's called This Week's Parsha. Learn it. It's amazing. It's like, it's so entertaining. Even if it's just entertainment. It's fascinating stuff. It's fascinating. It's, in this week's parish, you had the angels, right? The angels going up the ladder, down the ladder. Amazing stuff, like all over the place here. You want to start learning Torah, like learning like the next, for the next two months. Come to me, what is it? November, we're in December. December, come to me at the end of January and tell me it wasn't worth studying this parsha of the week. I mean, it's full action. Full action. You have soap operas and angels and wars. It's unbelievable stuff. But it all starts with Yaakov. Because Yaakov was not just a spiritual warrior. He was a physical warrior too. When he went to Haran, he was prepared to take action. He wasn't just a patsy. He wasn't just like going in and being like, I'm a Jew, but you know, okay. He's like a strong warrior. He was a powerhouse. He didn't count out to anybody, physically or spiritually. He was a shrewd businessman. He was attuned to physicality. He knew. He knew how to run a business. He knew what life was like. When he left the house of his father, he left with barely the shirt on his back. You ever heard the expression, someone will give you the shirt off your back? You know where that comes from? It comes from Yaakov. What happened? When Yaakov left the house of his father, his brother Esau wanted to kill him. Because Esau had sold him his birthright, his blessings from his father. And on his father's deathbed, he gave the birthright to Yaakov instead of Esau. So Esau was resentful that Yaakov took what was rightfully his, because he sold it years before. And Asa wanted to kill him. His brother wanted to kill him. So he left him literally the shirt on his back. His mother packed him some uh, pastrami sandwiches and he sent them out the door, ran away. He left with the shirt on his back. 
Esau sent his son to kill Yaakov. Like a bounty hunter. He was like a hired hitman. He was like the Boba Fett of the Jewish world. He sends him out to kill him. When his son sees Yaakov, the son's like, is this who you are? He saw him for who he really was. He was a spiritual master. And he says, I can't touch this man. I can't touch him. So what does he do? He says, I have to go back to my father. If I go back to my father and I haven't killed you, he's going to kill me. You know what Yaakov does? Gives him the shirt off his back. He says, here, give him my shirt. He knows I left with nothing. Takes my shirt. Go to your father. Say, look, I got his shirt. Killed him. Where does this expression come from? I literally give you the shirt off my back. It comes from this. He gave him the shirt off his back. But what does it tell us? It says that Yaakov was willing to be the most benevolent person, but the strongest person, the most spiritual person, and go to places where no one else was willing to go and remain a strong Jew in that place. Not assimilate, not follow the ways of the world. And in this place, he nullified the whole vicious energy of that place. Even more so, next week's parsha, when he returns to Israel again, he encounters Esau. And he refines Esau. So if you look on page 134, it says, the descent of Yaakov's soul was through the worlds. Yaakov of Veno, Jacob our father, influences the corrupt city of Haran. So now we're going to take the story of Yaakov and apply it to us today. How we can all be innovators. How are you a person who is a channel for innovation? So it says, And Yaakov left Beersheba and went to Haran. This characterizes the descent of the soul of every Jew into his body. The soul which you place within me is pure. The soul leaves Beersheba, the well, and the sphere of Bina, heavenly understanding, the source of the seven spiritual powers of Atzilus, and the soul continues on down and down to the Malchus of Haran. Continuing on to the worlds of Bria, Yitzir, Asiya, you created her, you formed her, you blew her into me. When the soul finally arrives into this coarse world, the place of God's burning anger, filled with abrasive coverovers, concealments, and dimensions away from God's presence, that conceal the holy and spirituality of the soul, a place where Jew can be harmed, there is where the greatest descent occurs for the sake of the amazing achievements and innovations of Yaakov, of a Jew, in this coarse material world. What does it mean? Before you're born, there's a treasure trove of souls. All our souls are on high. All of our souls are in God, with God. We're basking in the godly revelation of Hashem. When the soul gets sent down here, it's given a mission. And before it comes down, it's given an oath. It says you're going to go down into a body and you have a job to do. Be a righteous person. Don't be an evil person. And the soul says, no problem. Righteousness is my middle name. I'm a good neshama. A good neshama, as they say in Yiddish. A good soul. I'm a good person. Not a person yet, but I'm a good soul. Of course I'm going to listen to God. What's the question? Soul gets born. Comes out crying. Hungry. Cold. Shivering. And says, what did you send me into? <laughs> oh my goodness. This world. Cold hospital. 
people with masks on maybe, I don't know what. And they're like, oh, soul is very, very frustrated. And the minute the soul enters into the body, it's uncomfortable. This is not where I'm supposed to be. I don't want to be alive. I want to be with God. I want to be back there. What happened here? But a person is a baby. It says until a person can talk, they see angels. They can see angels. What does it mean? The angels escort a child into life because the, the, the friction of being born is so harsh. And so when the baby's born, when you're born, and your soul comes into a body, it's the worst descent you could possibly experience. It's the harshest reality a person can experience. It's like almost like, like I don't even want to say, it's like a holocaust for the spiritual side of a person. It destroys a person up inside, like the soul. And the soul is like, this is like, I didn't bargain for this. But then the soul is reminded as a child and all the way forward that it has a job to do. The soul is empowered with special powers, with special kohot, with special abilities. And it has a responsibility to the oath it took before it came down. We hold its feet to the fire and say, soul, you have a job to do. You have to use your body. You have to eat, you have to sleep, you have to drink, you have to pay bills, you have to live. But you still have the job to do to be a good person. You still have the job to do to serve God in this lifetime. And the soul, hopefully, is nurtured in a wonderful setting, in a warm home, with love of parents and grandparents, a home, hopefully, of kosher food. Most of us probably didn't grow up that way. A, hope, a home that's filled with Shabbos and tefillin and tzedakah and mitzvahs and good deeds and hospitality and love and nurturing. Sounds like a fairy tale these days, right? <laughs> but it could be real. You could make it real. We can still do it. We can do it for our kids. We can do it for ourselves. We can do it for our grandkids. But the soul needs nurturing. It needs that. And if you find the paint picture I painted to be one that at the same time is real and very fairy tale like, then the answer is what? You can do it yourself. You nurture your own soul. If your parents didn't do it for you, or if your grandparents didn't do it for you, or if they did some things great and other things could have been better, it's not their fault. Don't blame them. That's like psychology. They put that in like the closet. Like that's like Freud. Go dig in the dirt. Go go in your basement and dig up the the the, the foundation of your basement and just do that. That's not that's not Judaism. Judaism is realizing I'm a big boy. I'm a big girl. I have a beautiful soul. That's a nuclear reactor of positive energy and it's my job to harness that i can't blame my past and i can't just like look to goals in the future the soul came down and i'm given this amazing birthright that i have from hashem from god if you're angry at your own parents or you feel your parents did a great job or a bad job no matter where you come from on the spectrum hashem's your father hashem's your mother you have a beautiful inheritance. You're a child of Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, and especially Yaakov. 
And Yaakov paved the way. Yaakov went from the house of his father, just like the soul was by God, in the wellspring of, of beauty and wonderfulness. And then Yaakov had to go to Haran. What's Haran? The body. Viciousness. The soul feels bullied. Yaakov felt bullied. He was scared. He wasn't. He says, I'm scared. He says, I'm, he says I was scared. He was concerned. Yaakov didn't, wasn't like a fraud. So, yeah, I'm scared, but it doesn't matter. Yaakov said, this is not like, I'm not cool with this. Doesn't matter. Yaakov, he had a great life. He left that behind, though. He left the, the, the fairy tale, picturesque lifestyle behind him in Israel when he was running from his brother who wanted to kill him. And from that time in his life, it says until he was 117 years old, I believe, 100 plus years old, he was constantly fighting battles physical battles, spiritual battles. Read the Parsha this week. Read next week's Parsha and the Parsha after that. You'll hear about all his trials. It wasn't easy. But he innovated along the way. He paved the way for us to be able to deal with whatever life's challenges we're throwing. He gave our soul the capacity to not blame the circumstances of our lives, but to challenge the norms, to innovate new pathways in our own lives, in our own spiritual way. So this, that he went from this amazing, beautiful place to this, this vicious place, this coarse place, shows the same descent that we all experience in our lives. Yaakov gave us the template. He gave us the, the GPS for our soul. He says, here's the GPS of the Jewish experience. We have anti-Semitism. You're going to have wonderful Jewish parents and they're, but you're going to have to deal with like your brother and your father-in-law <laughs> and you have to deal with in-laws and outlaws and all kinds. That's literally what he had to deal with. He had to deal with his children who were good Jews, but they believe me, it wasn't easy raising those boys <laughs> and that girl. It was not so easy. He didn't have it easy as a father either. He actually says later in his life, I'm fast forwarding a few weeks. He says later in his life, the years I had as an older person when my sons were studying Torah with me, this is the best years of my life. Only then did he feel good. Only then did he feel, he didn't feel complacent, but he felt it's going to be good. When he saw his boys being good boys and he could study with them Torah, they said, now, now I know I did something. There's an amazing part in the Parsha. I only have three minutes to do it. But... It's on, it's on page 135, 36, and 37. There's an amazing point where Yaakov is on the lamb and he's running from his brother. And as it says here on page 136, he lied down to sleep in the location of the future temple in Jerusalem. As he's leaving Israel running from his brother, he falls asleep on the way. He falls asleep on the way. And where does he sleep? In the place of the holy temple. The holy temple, he slept there. I say it's like when I speak in shul, the rabbis speak, everyone falls asleep also. Everyone's just like Jacob, right? When I speak, some people fall asleep as well. When God was, he was in a godly place, when he was in temple, he was in shul. He also led the template for the Jewish people. He fell asleep in shul also. He fell asleep in the shul, in the holy temple in Jerusalem. <laughs> he fell asleep in synagogue. It's not, it's not unique to, to, to David falling asleep in the back row when I'm speaking. Everybody's falling asleep. 
Because Yaakov fell asleep there. But in all seriousness, how could you fall asleep in such a place? Chutzpah, come on. Shows us, he wasn't really like, oh my goodness, I just like, you know, dozed off. I took too much Ambien and like fell asleep and like, you know, I cashed out. I drank too many beers before I fell asleep. He did it for a very specific reason. It said when he slept there, a few miracles happened. One of the miracles is, is that it says that God collapsed all of Israel under his body. The human form, the average, not average, but the, the template for the human form is four amas, four cubits, which equates to about six feet, six feet, about six feet tall. And God collapsed the entire world land of Israel under him. So as that all of Israel would be contained in Israel, that every Jewish man, woman, and child since has mainframed in the matrix of our soul, Israel. We all have a holy land in us. We all have a holy land in us. If you've never been to Israel, go inside. You don't have to, LL, you could do also, but go inside. Go in. Another miracle is it said he put his head down on a stone. And he, before he fell asleep, he put 12 stones around his head to protect him. He put like a barrier. He built like a little uh, enclosure. When he woke up in the morning, one stone was there. One, one rock was there. Only one rock. The 12 became one. What does that symbolize? The 12 was going to be the 12 tribes of Israel. But the one is the one Jewish people. And the one is, is that although in this lifetime we encounter a fragmented reality, a world of, of, of friction, of, of separation, of disparate viewpoints and, and opposite, polar opposite, like political parties and nationalities and religions and, and food tastes and sports teams and all this multitudinous fragmentation that seems to be louder now than it's ever been in, since in human history. It all comes from God. There's only one. There's only one. There's a cute medrash, a, a story behind the story, that says the 12 stones fought between each other as to who Jacob would place his head on when he slept. They all fought. There was already Twitter back then. <laughs> there was Twitter back then also. Everyone was fighting and they had words with each other. <laughs> they said words. They, they mean-tweeted this guy. They bullied the other one. And they fought who would get to put have Jacob put his head on them. And guess what? When he woke up in the morning, they were all one stone. They all came to one place. The final miracle, which I think is the most beautiful, is that what does sleep show? You never sleep the same after you hear this. Sleep shows on equanimity, tranquility. Why? As human beings, we pride ourselves over the rest of creation as being head and shoulders literally above everything. We're above animals. We're not animals. Our head guides our body. Animals are all head is on the same plane as their backside. Most animals, even if they're on two legs, are their heads don't go up all the way. Their heads don't go all the way up. And it shows on that the brain is the same level as the heart, right? See a cow, the, the heart is here and the head is here, the brain and the head are very 
Right? You cannot get on the same plane of the of the animal. Most animals are that way. The giraffe. Oh, you know my story. You're giving my stuff away over here. I love that. That was good. There's a famous. You know. You know the story of the giraffe. I was going to tell you. Oh, the giraffe. One time. Is you know the giraffe's all the way up there. He's like eating from the leaves, and, and he sees the stars, and his heart is all the way down there. And the giraffe's very, very happy. And the giraffe, it's a story too. I forget which animal the giraffe talks to. I'm going to tell the story the wrong way. It's not the wrong way, but whatever animal it is. Let's say, uh, let's say the uh, cow. Whatever it is. Behemoth, an animal. It says to like the cow. And it says to the cow, you know, you should really look up. You should look up. Check out what's going on up there. See the heavens? Beautiful. The sunrise, the sunset. The, the moon, the stars, the tree, the leaves, the mountains. You should see what I see. It's unbelievable. You could see it from down there, but you could see it if you just look up. So what does the cow do? The cow breaks its neck and tries to look up tries to see and it looks everywhere it looks at the planets and the stars and the mountains as much as it could not like the giraffe but it looks up and it turns to the giraffe and says that's all beautiful but I can't eat it <laughs> I can't eat it it's an animal what does an animal look at can I eat it can I bite it what does it do for me you and I hopefully we look up at these things and we say oh there's a god beautiful world He's beyond that. Wherever I see his greatness, it's really where he's humble. But it shows us as people, we pride ourselves as our mind should control our heart. Our mind's above our heart. And our mind controls the rest of the body. Wherever the head goes, the body goes, right? You turn your head, your body goes that way. Our mind controls everything. Our head controls everything. What happens when we sleep? Our head and heart are again on the same level. We're like an animal. But guess what? Our feet are also on the same level. When we lie down, we lie down prone completely. Our head, heart, and feet are all on the same level. And what happens to our senses? They shut down, right? The smartest person in the world, also their brain shuts down on some level. And they're not fully conscious to the same level they were when they're awake. So when Yaakov slept there, he was doing something very, very mystical and very, very spiritual. He was not saying, God forbid, that he's like a a schluffer in the back of the synagogue, a sleeper in the back of the sh a temple. What was he saying was, before God, whatever I think really doesn't matter. Wherever I feel doesn't really matter. Wherever I go really doesn't matter. I'm an open book to God. I'm completely open to you, Hashem. I'm totally open. Believe me, Yaakov was a brilliant man. Believe me, Yaakov was a feeling person. He was a doer. He was an active, he was a spiritual and physical warrior. An innovator. But as great as innovation, he says, by God, I'm all equal. Mm. By God, everything, I'm, I'm prone. I'm completely open. And this is what Yaakov fell asleep in this place. He lied down in there to show that his spiritual and physical, his mind and his heart, his feet, his hands, everything was nothing before Hashem, nothing before God. And he says, this is the amazing power of a Jew. There were great, great spiritual people, we're great physical people, we're brains, we're smart, we're capable, we're all this. But if you're not focusing on Hashem, focusing on God, ultimately, then you're missing the point. 
So lying down in this great place of holiness brought about the ultimate spiritual advance for Yaakov. The parity and oneness of his entire entity being revealed in the presence of God. So Yaakov again teaches us how to be innovators. What is the smartest, what is the best way to be in this world? I gave it away to be a smart person. This person's smart, this person's brilliant. We praise people based on their intellect. This is the Western way. This is the way of the world. Brilliance, intellect, good grades, good college, good job, good profession. What's the real value of a Jew? Our soul. The soul's value. And the soul does not mean divorce yourself from physical. It means go to war with it. Be a spiritual innovator. Not just somebody who goes along with the crowd. So when Yaakov sleeps in the place of the Holy Temple, he's saying that as great as I can think, as great as I can feel, everything is for Hashem. Everything is for God. And that was the place eventually where King David would build the Holy Temple. Where Solomon, his son, would complete it. And that's the place where Mashiach will once again rebuild the house of God. Take a fiyad mamish right away. So thank you so much for coming. Have a good Shabbos. I hope you enjoy the Parsha and you read it. And uh, we'll see you next week. Have a wonderful Shabbos.